Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Hannah Elias. Shortly after the events of August 2017, when we saw shocking images of angry white men parading with tiki torches on the University of Virginia campus, that was followed by the march of white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and members of the KKK shouting blood and soil through the streets of Charlottesville. I spoke with four historians about how we can put the politics of white supremacy in Britain and America into historical perspective. This episode is the first of two parts. In this episode, you'll hear Professor Richard Drayton, who teaches Imperial History at King's College London. Professor Drayton has worked at Oxford, Cambridge, and the University of Virginia, and he's been the recipient of the Leverhulme Prize for History. Political commentators have observed the connection between a resurgent white nationalism and the election of Donald Trump in America and the Brexit referendum in Britain. When I emailed Richard Drayton about speaking on our podcast, I asked if he'd be willing to talk about the ways that white supremacy has encroached on our body politic in recent years. He replied, It's not so much that white supremacy is encroaching, but that it was built into the structures of life and thought, and is fighting back against challenges against it. I spoke to Richard in his office in London and asked him to explain what he saw as the long-term intellectual, social, and political roots of white supremacy in Britain and in the Americas. We should begin by by understanding that race is not a thing. Uh, Race is a social relation. Uh, And race race is not constructed... uh, uh, on its own. A racial identity is not constructed on its own, but it's constructed usually uh, in relationship to another system of identities. What we have in the period from circa 1500 to circa 1800 uh, is the emergence of a way of thinking about human bodily difference, human phenotypic difference, in terms of particular uh, racial orders. Uh, in particular, what we have um, possibly as early as the early 17th century, uh, the historian of biology, Stefan Müller-Villa, points to um, Piso and Markgraf's Medicine of Brazil, where the phrase, we Europeans, is suddenly conjured with uh, as something in distinction to um, Africans, Amerindians, all others. So the idea of, of uh, whiteness uh, is being constituted uh, as an identity, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century uh, world uh, relative to particular social relations, and in particular relative to the social relations of the slave plantation. So that it is uh, uh, in the context of uh, colonial territories, first of all, Iberian, later on, uh, English, French, uh, and, uh, and, and Dutch, that we have the making uh, of racial formations. In particular, uh, the construction of this idea of a set of actors who are called white, who have their locus uh, classicus in uh, the European continent, uh, and who are fundamentally different from other sets of actors who are assumed to be at a greater or lesser civilizational disadvantage in Africa, uh, Asia, uh, and uh, the Americas. Already by the late 18th century, we have in the work of uh, biologists, uh, physicians like Linnaeus and Blumenbach, 
uh, an idea that the human race was divided into these very large continental families um, that really can be mapped onto our surviving contemporary ideas of some people being white, black, yellow, brown, uh, red. Um, and these ways of, of thinking about race relative to geography were quite clearly being constructed side-by-side uh, -side European uh, Im uh, imperial uh, societies uh, and long-distance trade. Um, the status differences between whites and blacks were being enforced in plantation societies from very early on. The oldest piece of legislation in the English-speaking world which marks out a difference in status and value based on phenotypic race is the Barbados Slave Code of 1661, which has in its language a description of Negroes, uh, this interesting word which has migrated from the Spanish uh, into the English, as being a brutish race and therefore requiring exceptional uh, punitionary laws. In other words, that set of people who happen to have dark skins are being registered by this piece of law, which comes to become the model for similar laws passed in Jamaica uh, and in Virginia uh, and across the, Ameri the British Americas, designating these people as being more like animals, thus brutish, uh, and therefore being fit for uh, a particular violent uh, forms of punishment. So we have, in other words, a quite clear correlation between the description of certain categories of human beings as being less, than, less human than others uh, from relatively early on directly connected to the making uh, of the sugar plantation economy. And all of this then feeds back, as I'm suggesting, in Linnaeus and Blumenbach and, and Buffon, uh, in terms of the kinds of scientific racial categories which would become so important in the 19th and 20th centuries. So once we come into the 19th century, uh, we have this uh, uh, emerging idea uh, of human difference as being mapped under these apparently self-evident types, uh, which are uh, uh, racial uh, categories. And they are playing particular important roles, in particular the idea of whiteness. One important book by the American historian Edmund Morgan, uh, called American Slavery, American Freedom, asks the question, how was it that the American Revolution succeeded in tying together a variety of social actors, some of whom were rich, some of whom were poor, uh, who, well, might have well been fighting a class war, one with the other. And his solution to that question, and of course he was not just solving what happened in 1776, but indeed he was asking a question of the greatest importance for understanding 19th and 20th century American society. The solution to differences in class was found through race. In other words, rich whites, rich white men and poor white men could collectively share a difference in status relative to those who were not white. And so that the kinds of antagonisms and tensions which might have, have been generated in this society 
could be neutralized via this uh, racialized difference. This is critical to understanding not just what happens in the American Revolution, as per Edmund Morgan, but indeed what happens in the, in the United States in the decades after the American Civil War. In the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, there are policies which are described uh, as the policies of Reconstruction, in which there was an attempt, very briefly, uh, to turn upside down the forms of injustice which had characterized American slavery. And indeed, there were more black senators, congressmen, and elected officials in the decades which immediately followed the American Civil War in 1865 than there have been ever since, even since the Civil Rights Movement. But this was reversed in the late 19th century with the collapse of Reconstruction, in which, possibly motivated by an attempt to, to bypass the emergence of forms of white populism, uh, we see the propagation instead of forms of white supremacist ideologies, which provided a very potent uh, vehicle through which the forms of, of, of uh, social coalition that might have emerged between uh, black workers and white workers could quickly be neutralized. So that race plays a part uh, in the structures of class um, from the very beginning uh, of the plantation economy, uh, but this continues uh, in very important ways uh, into uh, the 20th century world. It's worth bearing in mind that race is not managed the same way in every society. Uh, as, I, as I was saying to begin with, race is a social relation. So uh, while in the United States, the principle known as the one-drop rule operated, so that somebody who had uh, a drop of African ancestry would be considered to be black, exactly the reverse operated in Brazil, where the idea of embranchimento, of whitening, uh, was imagined by early 20th century Brazilians uh, to be a possibility. If you just imported enough European settlers, Brazil would be whitened uh, via a process of mixture. Uh, this shows to us the ways in which uh, these racial identities are very specific to uh, particular places. But let's return to the British story with which you, 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 which you posed in the question. Much as Edmund Morgan argued that the existence of a black slave population proved to be uh, a group around which uh, whites of different social interests could form a kind of social coalition, it could be argued that the politics of empire in domestic in Brit within Britain in the late 19th century are very much connected with the politics of democracy. Uh, in other words, what we have uh, in the years that follow uh, the Second Reform Act in 1868 and, uh, and the, the Third Reform Act of 1884 is we have a politics of popular conservatism which emerges um, initially around Israeli uh, and later after his death around the Primrose League, which found in the spaces of the empire and in the idea of the empire as a space over which British people, whatever their provenance, had a shared interest and right, to be a way of building a cross-class conservative coalition. 
so that the forms of uh, of colonial domination play a role in stabilizing conservative solutions to democratic politics within metropolitan Britain. And lurking in the midst of this, in a more or less visible way, is in fact uh, exactly this idea of whiteness. This idea of whiteness is being uh, conjured with within the spaces of the British world. That's to say, not just Britain, but its diasporic extensions in Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa in the 19th century. Via the emergence of uh, arguments that uh, these were places that needed to be protected, uh, first, from the migration of inferior races. So, uh, for example, the migration of the Chinese was highly regulated uh, to all these uh, offshore British societies. And Indian indenture, which was supplying a large pool of labor for tropical colonies in the British Empire, was not allowed uh, to lead to the migration of large numbers of South Asians, um, which indeed would have been a natural solution to the labor question, uh, for example, uh, in Australia in the 19th century. So these, th- these, these discourses that surround immigration uh, come to be connected to also a politics of whiteness. Uh, which finds expression, for example, in that uh, extraordinary phenomenon of the forms of Australian nationalism that emerge in the late 19th century, in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, leading to the forms of the Australian Confederation, which have to do with linking nationalism with a kind of white supremacism. So why is it that uh, Australia ends up becoming uh, a, a confederated dominion? Uh, well, one of the large answers to that question is, in fact, anxiety about Chinese immigration and a feeling that only if they were, if they had full political rights, could they protect themselves from this onslaught. So it's not as if people are talking about whiteness in a kind of uh, noisy way uh, in the 19th and early 20th century world, although there were many who were. Uh, and this is in many ways the heyday of a kind of shameless, self-conscious, uh, white supremacist uh, language in, sci- in the sciences. But it's far more important with the ways in which ideas of whiteness were embedded into ideas of citizenship, subjectivity, civilizational potential. This is connected to ideas that uh, the indigenous peoples of Canada or Australia were either going to become extinct because they were backward, or they should be made extinct, either biologically through intermarriage, or indeed culturally through stripping them away from their ancestral traditions until those who were competent of becoming, inverted commas, civilized would become so and the rest would die out. And so we have, side by side with these immigration policies, uh, the increasingly intrusive and violent forms of First Nations government, of Aboriginal government that we see in Canada, uh, uh, Australia, uh, and uh, it's slightly more complicated in the case of New Zealand because of the terms with which uh, the Maori were able to extract uh, forms of uh, 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 surviving sovereignty. Um, but it's quite clear in the case of Canada and Australia that we have a kind of hardening uh, of 
the idea of whiteness relative to a kind of degenerate uh, Aboriginal, um, a backward, atavistic Aboriginal social world. It could be argued that, and this is the proposition of the Jamaican philosopher Charles Mills, who's now at CUNY New York, that the idea of the human being as a rational subject, as it emerges in European political thought and practice in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, is a profoundly raced idea. Uh, in his, uh, the book which he did with Carol Pateman, Contract and Domination, for example, Mills argues that the political subject, as understood both by political theory and in terms of the forms of political modernity which emerged in uh, the uh, late early modern and modern world, had the idea of the propertied white male actor as being the essential foundation of political society, as well as being uh, the exemplar of the rational political subject um, as represented by any sort of political theory. What this means is that when we come into the 20th century, we not only have this array of social conditions, of forms of uh, white supremacist economic management in the space of the plantation or the mine, forms of white supremacism as embedded in forms of government which excluded those who were not white and not property, these two things often being linked, from having the vote or having the right to decide politics. We also have this far more profound embeddedness of the idea of white privilege and difference into the structures of ideas and values uh, which, uh, around which the world was organized. To be taken seriously in the early 20th century world, people of color had to dress like Europeans, they had to learn European languages, and they had to speak them uh, with more articulacy than average Europeans. Uh, and these were the terms on which participation in modern society became possible uh, in the early 20th century. In other words, you had to make yourself presentable in terms of the gaze of white supremacism to function in the 20th century world. What, however, we saw in that dramatic period which runs from the first decade of the 20th century through to our own time, what Eduardo Galeano described as the century of the wind, uh, is this quite extraordinary set of challenges to assumptions about natural supremacy and uh, subordination which had been entrenched not just for decades or centuries, but in some cases for millennia. And the convergent emer emergence of struggles for the status of women, uh, for the status of people of colour, for the full enfranchisement of colonial peoples, uh, for the uh, challenging of all the kinds of forms of inequality which had been embedded in the life of uh, um, Western society that happens over that uh, hundred year span and which leads to these uh, uh, series of challenges to uh, the existing order, uh, in some cases uh, uh, via revolutionary and others in terms of uh, reformist programs, 
and which lead to that crisis in international affairs that we see in the middle of the 20th century, which in some cases, I think we really haven't really reckoned with uh, how rapidly and how dramatically it happened. I mean, we must remember that in the lifetimes of our grandparents, indeed of my parents, uh, women didn't have the vote in most countries in the world. And that was not considered to be a problem by large parts of, of the world. So we have this dramatic period of, of a kind of challenge to uh, what were assumed to be self-evident forms of inequality, which as a result of the crises of the 20th century, as a result of the First World War, of the Russian Revolution, uh, of the Second World War, uh, of the forms of anti-colonial struggle on every continent, uh, we had this uh, dramatic breaking of the old order uh, and a kind of reimagination of the idea of what it could be to be human, what it could be to live together uh, uh, as free and sovereign equals, uh, women and men, people of all colors of skin and shapes of noses and eyes and body types. That this, this set of changes, which came to a kind of climax in the turbulent years of the 1950s, uh, 60s and 70s, uh, produced societies uh, in which, in fact, uh, uh, radically new sets of assumptions about what was acceptable and what was normal uh, became the new orthodoxies. So very rapidly, in the space of less than a generation, uh, we had, in many ways, uh, the world turned upside down. Now, this came as something of a shock, in particular for those social groups who, in fact, had found in the idea of whiteness an important consolation for their own experience of forms of oppression and inequality. So that, for example, for the very poor whites who lived in the south of the United States, for the working class in British cities, in some ways, this uh, uh, collapse of uh, a racial uh, order in the late 20th century came uh, as a wound to them. Um, when we look at the political coalition which surrounds Donald Trump, we need to recognize this didn't begin in 2012 or 2016. This coalition really began to constitute itself in the years that followed the civil rights movement in the United States, in which the Southern whites, who had voted, voted for the Democratic Party for generations uh, as a result of the Republican Party having been the party of Lincoln, that's to say the party both of uh, the Civil War and of Reconstruction, uh, made a complete turn on their heels uh, and became, became part uh, of the political coalition surrounding Richard Nixon in his 1968 election. And it's really the Nixon campaign of 68 and 72 in which Nixon attempted to build a political coalition which was based on uh, what he called, uh, what were called at the time, white ethnics, that's to say uh, industrial white working class voters, uh, as well as white southern voters, around a conservative politics which uh, was, if it wasn't pro-Vietnam War, it was certainly anti-anti-war, um, uh, which involved essentially an attempt to, uh, to claim that the other party had, uh, had not only, the Democratic Party had not only 
um, uh, bet the ranch on uh, black people, um, but it also uh, were in uh, in coalition with or in, in cahoots with um, those, in fact, who had no respect for the forms of religious practice which were characteristic of the white ethnic communities. So we have this extraordinary Nixon coalition which links um, uh, poles in Chicago uh, with um, uh, poor whites in Mississippi uh, around a politics of social conservatism, uh, around what we might think of as a kind of anti-1968 politics. And once again, much as in the 18th century, much again as in the years after Reconstruction, the idea of whiteness was proving to be an important vehicle through which uh, a form of conservative coalition could be built uh, in American society. And this, in a way, was, uh, 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 runs in a fairly straight line uh, via Ronald Reagan uh, to, and, and George Bush uh, 1 and 2 uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, the politics of whiteness in America have been uh, very much a way through which conservatism uh, has organized uh, its political base uh, in the wake of the 1968 moment uh, and has attempted to uh, create a coalition around religion, uh, around um, uh, uh, patriotism, uh, around military service, uh, around uh, foreign wars, uh, which uh, has as part of its glue uh, the idea uh, of whiteness. In Britain, it's difficult to find a simple comparison. Uh, in many ways, the ways in which non-white immigration was integrated into British society in the 1960s and 70s and 80s are, by some measures, I think, uh, nothing short of miraculous. Uh, I think that if one looks at the forms of intermarriage and of uh, cultural uh, exchange uh, which, um, which took place uh, in the 1970s and 80s in Britain. Uh, one has uh, a sense in which, in fact, um, there were limits to uh, the self-evident character uh, of uh, working-class racism. And indeed, in the midst of a Britain which was actually providing uh, extraordinary opportunities for working-class people, and it could be argued that the, uh, the greatest, the golden age for working class people in Britain uh, were those last decades uh, of the post-1945 welfare moment in the 60s and 70s. It is really in, midst, in the midst of the politics of Thatcherism uh, and of the attack on social welfareism in the late 19th and early 21st centuries that we've seen the re-emergence of ideas of whiteness uh, linked to ideas of patriotism, uh, linked to sensitivities about religious practice, which were previously scarcely that important in Britain, to suddenly become this uh, potent organizing sing signifier around significant minorities of the most disenfranchised uh, white British people. Uh, disenfranchised not in an intellectual sense, but in a social and economic sense. Much as conservative politics in the United States in the late 19th century sought to respond to 
the threat of potential white radical politics by encouraging the emergence of forms of white supremacism as an alternative to a radicalization in the white working class in the United States. In much the same way in Britain, those who have been involved in the cultural engineering of working class politics, in particular the, the media barons who control the big tabloid newspapers, have been in a very deliberate and methodical way creating a narrative for white working class British people which explains the collapse of the welfare state and of the experience of social mobility which they had enjoyed and of safety which explains it in terms of the impact of immigration and of course of Europe. So that uh, the forms of white supremacism which have, 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 have emerged in Britain in the last decade and a half are not just linked to the politics of the war on terror, although that is there. They're far more directly linked to the politics of blatcherism, uh, that conjunction of neoliberal policies, which has its first heroic era uh, in the Thatcher period, but which finds its culmination uh, under the governments of Blair and Brown. The collapse of the British welfare state, the collapse of British economic opportunity, the de-skilling of the white working class, the attacks on coal mining communities, on steel making communities, on the industrial communities in the north, has created a population which has then subsequently been the object of a consistent propaganda campaign of large media organizations directed to providing explanations to them for their situation, which have to do with the beleaguered predicament of whiteness relative to an uh, emerging sea of non-white immigration, which in uh, one of Margaret Thatcher's uglier phrases uh, was going to swamp them. Uh, so that the people who murdered Joe Cox, the people who uh, uh, march in the street under the EDL uh, banner, these are the products uh, of the forms of social and economic change which have emerged in Britain uh, since uh, the 1980s. Uh, and they're the products also of deliberate attempts to direct uh, white working class anger away from the politics of class towards the politics of race. But they've been able to succeed because of this deep reservoir of white supremacist identity and ideology, which is embedded and which has never been coherently challenged in the structures of British life. Thanks to Professor Drayton for taking part in this podcast. You can subscribe to the History Workshop podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and many other podcatching services. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. In the next episode, part two of this conversation, we'll carry on with Jennifer Evans, Marsha Chatlin, and Keith Carlson.